Okay, Hebrews chapter 12. In your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12. Now, this is uh, part 10, part 10 of um, this series on holiness. And I do appreciate the, some of the feedback uh, that I've been getting. Not so much the pats on the back, and I don't mean it that way. I just mean the, the feedback, because it's good to share and communicate and um, it just gives us an overview and an understanding of, um, you know, God is speaking and God is ministering and God is helping us in this series. And so it's been uh, quite comprehensive, I, I think. And um, there's obviously much more that we could touch upon and we're still going. I kind of thought this week, I sat down and thought, okay, how can I bring this to a conclusion, this series? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, not yet. <laughs> and so there's a few other uh, key components that um, I, I wanted to consider. And uh, obviously one of these is that which we're going to look at um, uh, this morning. Now, we've been looking at and we've been shifting our focus on our responsibility, our part in the, in the uh, process of, of practical holiness, holiness living, living right before God as instructed and found in the scriptures. And so you will remember we've covered much and we've looked at uh, various aspects internally and still are, but we're also focusing on the external aspects of holiness because holiness is, is, is like a complete package in a sense and it has many aspects. And so you can't isolate one to the extent of the other. As you consider them all and put it together, you get an understanding of biblical holiness, the doctrine of holiness that calls us to be separated, that makes us holy. Christ makes us holy in him. Uh, that's, that's in the positional sense. And, and yet we are called to live a practical life that is holy, to come out and be separate, says the Lord. Remember, we looked at that. And so... Holiness is, is central to the Christian life. And so there is aspects of obedience and submission. And there are various aspects that we see in which the Spirit of God works in us. But as we look at this question, how is holiness achieved? I want to look at another key principle in the Word of God this morning that's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Now, you might already know what it is. What is it? <laughs> What's another key principle to holiness for the Christian? And it's found in Hebrews 12, and it has to do with the discipline of God. The discipline or the chastisement of God. Now, again, just that, just that statement in and of itself is, uh, is quite potent because we're talking about now God's involvement. I mean, God is working in us to bear fruit unto holiness and all of those things through his spirit. But when we talk about the discipline of God, it gives us another picture of his character and of his nature and the manner in which he deals with us. And especially, holiness is on his mind. 
God's will is for our sanctification. That is for our holiness. That is that we would live a life that's holy, pleasing and acceptable to God. And yet so many of his children are walking in disobedience and in a manner that is not pleasing to him. So what's God going to do? He's going to correct us. He's going to discipline. He's going to chastise us as the scripture will instruct us. And this is central because it has to do, again, with holiness, as we will see and discover in the Scripture, because God is demanding holiness this morning. It's the commandment, Be holy, for I am holy in all of our conduct. And so God's discipline is to produce holiness and is a central pillar of the doctrine of holiness this morning. God just doesn't sit back. And, uh, and is not involved. I mean, the Bible talks about he who has begun a good work will complete it. It is God that works in us to will and to do. So God is working. But when we see in the context of this scripture, he's working sometimes through his discipline and chastisement. There's a reason for that, as we will discover. But God is actively involved. And so if we ignore the discipline of God as we consider the holiness of God this morning, then we really wouldn't be doing a full overview of holiness in the Scripture because it's that important in the mind of God and in the purpose of God. And so let's consider it, remembering we're looking at God's part and our part. And again, we're going to see the, the, the two working together in this particular text, portion of text. So let's read from verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through to verse 15. So follow me. The Bible says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with, as, as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? For if you are without chastening, of which, all, uh, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not be more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that, you, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. We'll leave it there. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That's a pretty profound statement. Because the potential obviously is there that we could fail the grace of God. Now, none of us would want to fail and fall short of the grace of God. So let's consider what the writer has put forth for our consideration and our instruction and admonition this morning. And again, we're just going to stick to the topic because there's lots of things we could draw out of some of these verses. But we must just keep in context that we're looking at holiness and so we're going to draw out those things that are relevant to to that, okay? But look at verse 1. The Bible tells us uh, that... uh, um, that the Christian life is one of faith and obedience to God, whatever it is, the cost. doesn't matter what's involved. Whatever God would require of us, the Christian life is a life of obedience and, and faith in God. Now, what that means for individuals can vary. I mean, here in Australia, it may mean one thing, but to others in other, other parts of the world, to follow Jesus may mean that they're going to they lose their families, they're disinherited, they, they are uh, even losing their lives, and they're persecuted. And so again, whatever the cost may be, we must set ourselves, and that's why you have the faith chapter of Hebrews 11 previously. But again, these examples in Hebrews 11 are to serve as inspiration to you and I that doesn't matter whatever it is that we have to face or endure, that we too will uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because the Christian life this morning is is not a tiptoe through the tulips. It's it's not a a sprint, 100 metre sprint, but rather it is a marathon. And it requires of us a a diligence, it requires of us a perseverance, it requires of us an endurance, and we have to deal with the issues of life so often in order to maintain our walk with God and maintain a life that is pleasing to Him. Now notice what it says. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us... Note the words, let us. Paul, or the writer here, is obviously shifting specifically on the human responsibility. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now let's break that down because we are being instructed to do something. Lay aside every weight, whatever would hinder us from obeying God, whatever would hinder us from doing the will of God, it doesn't matter whatever it is. Lay aside every weight that would impede you and hinder you from doing what God wants you to do. Now, when it says every weight, it's not referring to sin because that's what it refers to in the next instance. 
It might be something that's in, it's not in and of itself evil, but it's a weight in that it's hindering you from running the race according to, in your lane, according to the will of God. And therefore, it's a hindrance. So therefore, it has to be put aside. If it means, <clears throat> if it means it's going to hinder me from walking worthy before God, if it means it's going to hinder me from in my relationship to God and, and drawing near to him and reading my Bible and prayer and, and fellowship with God's people and coming into God's house, if it's going to keep me away from these things, then it's a weight. And that weight has to go. Lay aside the, the weight, every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Hmm, the sin which so easily ensnares us. It's not specific, so again, but there can be issues in our lives, sins in our lives that we're vulnerable, weaknesses. You know them, they're applicable to you. But the sin that so easily entraps us, the Bible says, put, away, put aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And again, we've got to deal with the issue of sin. Because uh, just uh, we, can get, we can become too compromising. We can become too tolerant of things that are unacceptable in our lives that God says are sinful and they need to be dealt with. They need to go because they are ensnaring us. They are hindering our spiritual growth. They are hindering our spiritual maturity. They are hindering us from pleasing God and walking worthy before him. And so the sin that so easily ensnares you, it has to be laid aside. And that is, uh, again, a generic aspect, but what it means to individuals is dependent, but God will speak to us because it could be something different. But nevertheless, it must be dealt with, is what the Bible's teaching us. And so... Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares. And there it is again, let us, there's another emphasis, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I mean, the whole emphasis here is self-effort. It's really us, you and I, exerting ourselves, obviously not in our own strength. We un you understand I don't mean that. But what I mean is, is, is our part in this process is clear. And we have to do our part. And we have to uh, uh, obey God. We have to yield to God. We have to submit to God. And so we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And look at what it says, looking, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Now, again, we're never left alone. Whenever the Bible tells us to do something, it's not, we're never left to ourselves to do it. Or in our, own, in our own resources. We have God, Amen. But you see, the Bible says, looking unto Jesus. If you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for an example, then the Bible says, look unto Jesus. Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith, the completer of our faith. Because that's why the scripture says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete. That's the word again, finish. It's the same word, complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
And so God is the author of our faith and he's the finisher of our faith and in that process we are co-workers, if you want to use the term, or with him in which now we must do our part, lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares and every entanglement and weight that is hindering us from doing the will of God. As it says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus endured this morning. He endured something that no human would, would endure. The Bible says that he was marred more than any other man. I mean, there was a dimension to the sufferings of Christ. And if we ever think that we've got it bad enough, or if we ever have it that bad, and we can have it bad, the people have it bad, but you know we consider him because Jesus has gone before us, amen? And so consider him for the joy that set before him, he despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him, verse three, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. I mean, we, we think we have it bad sometimes. We talk about some of the rejection that we may feel. But Jesus endured such hostility, and it was severe. So we're to consider his sufferings. We're consider, to consider his experience. And, uh, and this, listen, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Because that's the danger, is that we can become weary and we can become discouraged. And to become discouraged means to lose courage. And this is a lack of faith in our walk with God. And this ultimately, when people become weary and discouraged, you know what happens? They don't strive against sin anymore. That's what happened to those stragglers back in, uh, uh, in Israel, wasn't it? That the enemy, they got tired and discouraged. And so what did they do? Ah, forget it. They just cast off the shackles and they weren't enduring. They didn't, and they just uh, were taken by the enemy into sin and, and disobedience to God. Verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You see, we always have to fight against sin. As long as we're in this body of death, church, we're not going to reach a stage of, state of perfection. We are always going to be struggling against sin. And the moment you think you've arrived, <laughs> maybe let me know, because, because we, we're never going to arrive until we put this body of death off, whether that be through death or the coming of Jesus Christ, amen, when we are translated, hallelujah, but it's going to happen. But in the meantime, we are promised provision and we are promised victory, but there is a constant striving, there is a constant struggle, and that's why we're called to mortify the flesh. I have a book at home, it's called A Struggle to the Death. Because that's how sometimes the flesh is. And the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. There's a war, that internal war that goes on, and it's not just the devil. Sometimes it's with <laughs> and ourselves. But listen... Whatever our struggle is, don't get discouraged. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. You see, there's no room for self-pity in this race. The moment you start feeling sorry for yourself is the moment you're in deep trouble. I'm telling you. That's the danger. You get weary, get discouraged. Why, Lord? Why me? And it might be that we're in, it might be that you're actually in the mix. We'll see this. It might be that God's doing something in your life, has allowed something in your life. Maybe it's God's 
I'm not saying it is, but it could be. Maybe it could be God's uh, chastisement. Maybe God's correcting you. Maybe God has allowed some circumstances to bring you to a certain point to get your attention. And so rather than uh, uh, have an ear to hear what God might say, we're too busy, oh, well, you know, this Christian life, it doesn't work for me. And so people depart and people disappear and people move on and they fall away and uh, this is not how it ought to be. Don't become weary and discouraged because that is cool. cause you to cast away your confidence and God takes no pleasure in the one that draws back to petition. Hebrews says it. So, in the midst of this, rather than feel sorry for ourselves, and we're all prone to it, some more than others, and I have, I have to be honest with you, I have my own temperament, you have yours, but uh, I, I reckon I, I'm a bit, a bit prone to a bit of self-pity. I don't have to say amen, Barbara, relax. <laughs> but it's true. I know my struggles. I know some of the things that are unique to my personality, my character, my temperament, just as you. And so, but we must be mindful of these things. And so that's why the writer says, look at verse 5, and says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Now, listen to this, because you must understand, this is where we are now being introduced to the discipline of God, the chastisement of God. So I don't like to hear about this, Pastor. You need to hear about it, because it's because God loves you this morning. God's discipline and chastisement is not his rejection, but rather it is a demonstration and a sign of his love for you, and that you are his child. That's what the scripture is teaching us. And so we're introduced to the discipline of God. Don't forget the exhortation that speaks to you as, what? Sons. As, in other words, as children of God. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For the Lord loves, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I mean, think about that for a moment because this is telling us that we are deeply loved by our Heavenly Father this morning. Then when we're talking about God's discipline, because of experiences people have in life, they, they, you know, there can be a rejection because somehow discipline means rejection because discipline obviously may not have been executed. It was more abuse um, than discipline. But you see, proper biblical discipline, which is, is biblical, which is how God operates, it is clearly uh, a demonstration of God's love for us this morning. Don't forget the exhortation. It speaks to you as sons, as children. You know, but the thing is, is that we're, you know what children are like? They don't always listen, do they? Hey. You know what children are like. <laughs> and listen, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a parent. I've got four kids. I know. You can see some smiles in the back. <laughs> but you see, I understand, and now I can relate to this even more. 
But the, the reality is, is that no one likes to be disciplined. But the necessity of life is such that we must. And I know this is a dirty word in the common, in the world we're living in today. You talk about discipline and child, they're going to be, they're going to report you for child abuse. No, 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 no. No. Their world has corrupted the biblical term discipline. Because now you talk about discipline, it's like a dirty word. It's like, oh my gosh, how could you? What do you mean? How can't you? That's what God says. How can't you? Because, listen, listen to Proverbs verse, chapter 13, verse 22. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And so this is important because God is saying that if to, to consistently withhold the rod is not good. In fact, if you love, you must discipline because this is a godly method of instruction and correction. And you discipline promptly, the scripture says. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, the same truth is reiterated. It says, my son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights. You know why? I understand in the world, you know, and human parents, we're, we all fail when it comes, and even, even as a Christian, I know I have failed in execution of discipline. But nevertheless, we might be imperfect fathers, but God's not perfect. And when we talk about discipline, biblical discipline this morning, the Bible's clear, and it says, uh, the son in whom he delights. You know why you discipline? It's not because of rejection. It's not because you want to cause pain and suffering. No, it's because you love, and you delight in that child. That is your child. And so God says, I delight in you. You are, don't you forget the exhortation that speaks to you as sons? You are children of God. And because of that, whom the Lord loves and delights in, he will chastise. He will not allow you to get away with wrongdoing. He will not allow you to, to disobey over the longevity of time. But he will orchestrate means to bring about discipline and correction in your life. Now listen to what the scripture says in verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? See, we have to endure chastening. You know what some people are like? When, the, when, when God does turn up the heat and when God is, uh, gets a little firm, when God gets the rod out, so to speak, in our lives, you know, we're like, who do you think you are? Why is he treating me like that? Why does he do this? And people's attitude can sometimes be a bit proud on the, on, on the arrogant side. You know what? Job said, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. But his wife said, curse him and just curse God and die. Because how we respond to the discipline of God is important this morning. Our attitude, our disposition of heart. And so God forbid that we would become arrogant and proud and disobedient and harden our hearts even further against God, which is potential possible. 
And so the Bible says, look in verse 8, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, all of us, where all of us are Christians this morning, you're all going to be a partaker of God's chastening. Praise the Lord, Pastor. <laughs> Glory to God. That's part of the, we're all partakers of it. But if you are not, he says, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You know what? If God says, if I can't bring correction and chastisement, discipline to your life, then you are not my child. In fact, that's the, 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 the sign that you are his is that he will take the time to chasten you. It's, that's, the, that's the sign that he actually cares enough that he won't allow you to get out of way with it. And so here we have all of these things revealed to us. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Now, human fathers are not perfect. But you know what? I think, I think my children would look at me in the most part and they'll say, you know what? I, Dad wasn't perfect. But thank God he gave me a smack on the bum. Thank God that there was some discipline. My mother, I, was, I grew up in a divorced family. My mother, I, set, I was such a naughty boy that sometimes I set my mum off so bad. And you know what she did? She got an iron cord and would chase me around and then go, Phew! and I tell you, whoa, the pain. But I look back and I say, oh, thank God that she did that. <laughs> Now, you know, I drove her nuts and she wasn't always executing discipline properly because, you know, being a single mum with three boys all within 18 months of each other, uh, 24, what is it? No, 36 months of each other was, was a handful, to say the least. But I tell you what, I needed it. I needed some discipline because I was terrible. But, you know, but we, and so we grow to respect human parents that discipline us, even if it wasn't perfect. But thank God they took the time to correct us. Because when you leave a child to itself and you don't correct, that is just, Bible says, you can't do that. That's not right. It's not biblical. Love can't do that. Love must intervene. Must, love must act. And discipline is exactly so, as the scripture tells us. And so we showed human fathers respect. Shall we not be more readily, be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Of course, that's a rhetorical question, but of course, shouldn't we not respect God and submit to God in such circumstances? The answer is simply yes, of course. And it says in verse 10, for they chastened us as seemed best to them. But listen, why does God discipline? Is it for his profit? No, listen, but he for our profit, for our benefit. For our, we are the ones that profit from discipline. I tell you, I look back at 30 years as a Christian and I've been through some trials and I've had God's discipline at, at work in my, in my life. And the Bible, and David, in fact, he says to God, your gentleness has made me great. Sometimes God has been gentle when he could have been a whole lot firmer with, with me. But I look back and he's brought me through times and I thank God for those times. But at the time, they were painful. No discipline is, is pleasant at, the, at that time. 
And that's what the Bible says here. God disciplines us for our profit. Now listen, why does he do it? Look at verse 10. He does it because that we may be partakers of his holiness. That we may be partakers of his holiness. One might be quick to say, but I'm already a partaker of his holiness. I'm holy in Christ. This is not what the Bible's talking about here. It's not addressing your position. Now it's addressing your conduct. It's addressing your way of life. And that if, you are, uh, if you're going, you must live according to that, which is your, your position in Christ. And so therefore, if you're going to become a partaker of his holiness, then you must come out from among them, be separate to you, says the Lord, and I will receive you as my what? Sons and daughters. Because you must be separated. You must be a partaker of the holiness, and it must be seen outwardly. Because if you are outwardly not living holy, but inward, and inwardly claiming Christ, then there's a severe contradiction, and God says, I won't accept it. And so, we are to be practically separated and consecrated. Look at verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, it yields. Now, listen to this. Nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know what? Sometimes we don't allow ourselves to be trained by God's discipline. In fact, God disciplines and we can become harder in our hearts and more stubborn in our ways, which ought not to be the case, but that's what we're like. That's what Israel was like. And we can be like that. But if we are allowing ourselves to be trained through the painful experiences of life, sometimes like, why God? I don't understand, Lord. But you know, just endure, just hold fast, just trust God because you'll see, you'll come to a point and you'll see exactly what God was doing and why he was doing it. But you see, listen to what the scripture says. It's painful, but what does that pain produce? It yields, meaning yields, it causes us to submit ourselves, to surrender, to obey God. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life. The fruit of righteousness begins to manifest because God is having his way in our lives. Now notice all of this has to do with holiness that we may be partakers of his holiness, that we may bear uh, uh, the fruit of righteousness or right living, to live right before God. And so God is looking for a response from us to those who are trained by it. Look at verse 12. The writer says, therefore, in light of this great truth that we've just considered, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that that which is lame may not be dislocated but be healed. You know, God is in the business. In he, when, when he's disciplining us, he is working something far greater in our lives to bless us. 
And so what happens is Christians can get stuck in a rut. They're not really learning the lessons. They're going around in circles. And, uh, and therefore, they, um, Christians can be, well, one, they can get weary and discouraged, but two, they can become disabled, so to speak, as a, as a word of expression, uh, or, or, um, or the word here says lame, or they become injured. And they, they're not progressing because, you know, they're, up, they're angry with God about something. They're upset by a circumstance of life. They're trapped and they're not progressing uh, and moving in the direction that God would have them. But you see, the Bible says, strengthen the hands which hang down. We've got to move forward. We've got to grow into maturity. We must progress in the faith. That's why it's sad to see Christians maybe who say, I've been a Christian for 30 years and their spiritual development is like, like that. And it ought not to be so, but something's gone wrong there. They have, they have fallen short of the grace of God at some point in their life because God would never allow us to remain that way for that long. And so we must understand how God works this morning. Let me just read a couple of other scriptures, if I may. You know, God, he had to humble Israel because they disobeyed again and again and again, and God disciplined them over and over, and he brought chastisement to them in various ways. And they still ultimately didn't listen to the point where God says, that's it, enough's enough. I'm going to vomit you from the land, and I'm going to severely chastise you, and I'm going to send you off to Babylon. And this was happening, and uh, you know, one of the prophets was Jeremiah, the prophet, the weeping prophet, as we, he is referred to, and he's overseeing and speaking at a time when this is being executed, and it's heartbreaking for him. And then he writes a book of Lamentations, and he's lamenting the current state of the nation of Israel and their circumstances, and he's reflecting upon God. And then God's speaks and listen to what the word says in Lamentations chapter 3 verse 33. It says, For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. You know, God doesn't get anything out of bringing affliction to our lives, chastisement to our lives. He doesn't do it willingly. It's not something he wants to do. It's something he knows he has to do. But he doesn't like, you know, when he sees, when he disciplines us and he sees the suffering that can come to our lives, he doesn't, there's no, he doesn't delight in that. He doesn't afflict him willingly. There's no joy. That's, that's wrong. There's never, a parent would never have pleasure, any pleasure, to see their children suffer, even if they know that they must or bear the consequences of certain actions. There's a grief that comes with that. No one would willingly put their children through such circumstances. But you see, Job as well, which is, again, not that Job was subject to the chastisement of God because he wasn't, but as he and his friends reasoned about God, there were certain, certain things that were said. And in Job chapter 5, verse 17, there's a correct statement here that says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects, Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. 
He wounds, but his hands make whole. You see, that's the heart of God this morning. You know, God in his dealings with us, sometimes he has to bruise us. Sometimes he has to bring about wounds in order to get our attention, to humble us, to uh, whatever the case is. But you see, in those things that he allows, the Bible says he binds up. He, he, he makes us whole. He brings healing. And this is what the scripture says. It says, uh, um, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. God wants to bring healing and wholeness. But you see, if you're going to enter into the fullness of God's blessing, uh, uh, then you are going to have to be holy. Because holiness is the only life that the Lord can bless. You can't live unholy and say, I've got the blessings of God. It's a contradiction. You can't, because God says... Uh, I'm going to have to deal with you now and I'm going to have to chastise me. I'm going to have to bring about correction and whatever that may be. And there can be some severe things in Scripture that we won't go into, but they're there. But you see, when God has his way with us and we yield and we repent and we turn and we separate and we obey and we say, sorry, God. You know what? God heals us in a moment. He binds the wounds up in a moment. And that's our Heavenly Father. That's our God this morning. And so God wants us to be healed. Now look at verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now this has become a controversial scripture. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so let's look at this and I want to try and dissect it a little if we can. And I'll give you my understanding of what the scripture, or I believe the scripture is referring to specifically here. First of all, it says pursue. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. So there's a pursuit. Remember we're talking about a holy life. We're talking about obedience. And the Bible's telling us to pursue, to pursue peace with all people, to pursue holiness without which no one can see the Lord. And so we must begin to realize here that we are called to pursue. And that's going to involve the effort and that's going to involve something from us. You know, the NIV says, uh, uh, make every, rather, says, rather than pursue, it says, make every effort. Make every effort to be at peace and to pursue peace with all people, as much as it depends on you, as the scripture would tell us. And pursue holiness. Make every effort. Now, think about that for a moment. Make every effort. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to throw this word out this morning, and I'm going to put some context to it. But let's look at the, you know, when we say pursue peace and pursue holiness, are we talking about works? Yeah, we are. 
say, what do you mean, Pastor Gary? I'm talking, the Bible's telling us about works. You see, the word work, if you want to define it, simply means physical or mental effort done in order to achieve a purpose or a result. So when the Bible says make every effort to pursue peace and holiness, then we are clearly called to get to work and to make every effort, whether it's physical or mental, in order to achieve the purpose or the result that God is requiring of us. So absolutely there is work. But these are works not to be saved. These are works because we are saved. Okay? Note that. These are not works to be saved because that's contrary to the biblical principle. No one's saved by works. But just now that we are saved, now the Bible is clearly telling us to work. Another statement here says sanctification or holiness is not real unless it expresses itself in obedience to the divine law. And obedience means works. I know it's become such a dirty word. But if you put it in its proper context, it makes perfect sense. And I pray that you see that this morning. James would use the word... Without works, your faith is dead. Oh my gosh, I've got to work to be saved. That's not what James is saying. He's saying if you're saved, you're going to have the works. Okay? And if, when we talk about holiness and, and pursuit of peace and holiness, then if, we're, if we are saved, then we're going to be working towards holiness. It's as simple as that. Pursue it. Perfect it. We can't escape these words in the Scripture. And then it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, we got to it. <laughs> without which no one will see the Lord. Now, you can take that in the first instance and say, well, if you're not pursuing holiness, then people will say, well, then in that case, you won't, uh, when you die, you won't go to heaven. You won't see the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that the scripture is not saying exactly what it's saying. Because if you read it, it says uh, um, clearly that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But in what way is it referring to? This is, the, this is what I want to examine quickly with you, so bear with me. How are we to interpret this? And so in a certain sense, but this is not the direct interpretation, but in a certain sense you can say, of course, I mean, uh, without holiness, no one can see God. And you can refer to positional holiness that's in Christ because uh, the sinner has to be saved. The sinner has to be declared holy and righteous before God by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Or else he can't see the Lord. But, and that's a truth, but that's not what this text is saying. It's not talking about positional. It's talking about practical. That's the whole emphasis of the chapter, which I've sought to establish. So... I must pursue holiness, without which I will not see the Lord. And so when we consider this now in the strictest sense, is it saying to the believer that uh, if I don't pursue holiness, then I won't go to heaven? Well, then that's contrary to what we just established when we talk about works, because we don't believe that one is saved by works. But you see... 
if the, if the writer is meaning that, then the, the text becomes problematic for various reasons, not just one, just because as you compare Scripture with Scripture and if you consider even the context of, of chapter 12. But I want to just focus with you and note uh, verse, um, or, or I want to note actually the, the context because the context is what? The child of God. Is that right? The whole chapter of Hebrews 12 is to the child of God. And it's to the Christian. And God will discipline us. It's in our struggle against sin and in our lives. We, we are called to lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares every weight. We're called to be partakers of his holiness. And so as God's children, he'll discipline our lives and he'll get our attention. Why? Because he wants us to act and he wants us now to pursue holiness. And he's dealing with us on the basis that we're his sons, we're his children. That's the whole reason this is happening. And so Hebrews 12 is based on the fact that we are children of God and born again. Now, I want to put to you something this morning, because the word see in verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. That word in the Greek means to gaze. And not just to gaze, but it means to, to gaze with eyes wide open. If you do study this word in the Greek. And so we're not talking about a mere observation, you know, just to see. Ah, oh, did you see that? No. I'm talking about to gaze, to behold, to, to see with eyes wide open. And so the word appears, the word actually means to appear, to show oneself. For example, when Jesus, after his resurrection, he walked, and the Bible says he was seen by uh, the apostles and the 500 that saw him after his resurrection. In other words, Jesus allowed himself to be seen. He showed himself to these individuals. Okay? And so, and so again, it's associated with another Greek word in its root word, which means to stare at, to discern, to experience and to perceive. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is that without holiness, you cannot see God. It was, I believe that in the context of the child of God, uh, that it's referring to your intimacy and your relationship to Jesus Christ will be obscured and it'll be uh, your understanding of who God is will be limited. Your knowledge of God will be shallow and you will not see God as he really is. <laughs> Because you must pursue holiness. Without holiness, you cannot see God. That's why the Bible says uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, uh, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the same he, uh, Greek word in the text, to see the Lord. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, pure means to be clean. And so when you're contaminated by sin and disobedience and a whole array of things in your life that are offensive to God, then you will not see the Lord. And I guarantee, I'm not saying, let me say this, I'm not an advocate, uh, just for, to, for clarification. I do believe, I know this is not going to be agreed by everyone, but I do believe that the potential exists for people to lose salvation. 
Now, what I mean by that is, uh, is something that has to be examined scripturally. But I'm just saying to you, in the extreme circumstances, I believe that the possibility exists. That's my conviction. I know it's, others have different convictions. And I understand the eternal security. And I don't believe what I'm saying encroaches in, in, in upon that. But my point is, is that in this instance, I don't believe that the scripture is referring specifically to that. It's referring to the fact that if you're a child of God and if you're walking in disobedience to God, then how can you see God? Or in fact, uh, John goes in his epistles, he goes as far as to say that there, there are those who profess Christ and they hate, they don't pursue peace and they don't pursue holiness and he goes as far as to say that some of them don't even know God. In other words, they, don't, they haven't seen God because if you've seen God and treat your brother and sister in such a way, he says, then how do you know him? And see how there's, a, there's all those practical aspects. But you see, the point that I'm making this morning is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're going to see God for who he really is, if you're going to enjoy sweet fellowship and intimacy with God, then you must live a life that is holy, because that, uh, otherwise it will, it will distort our understanding of God. It will distort the way in which we view him and see him because of the way in which we live and conduct ourselves. And so, the immature and the carnal and the unholy Christians who don't pursue peace and holiness, how can they see God this morning? They, they can't. They can't see God. The Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. How can you live in sin and yet somehow think that you're going to see God? No, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God because he will withdraw from you. He, God resists the proud. And so he's not going to allow for intimacy and closeness in conditions of disobedience and rebellion against him. And so, there you have verse 14. Now look at verse 15 as we conclude. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And it gives examples there, but we don't have time to go into that. But you know, you can fall short of the grace of God this morning. The word means, to, in the King James, it says to fail the grace of God. You know God doesn't fail. He never fails. But you know what? We fail. We fail the grace of God because the grace of God is so precious. The grace of God, the Bible says, empowers us to have victory over sin, yet we so often don't appropriate that victory. The grace of God, the Bible says, even teaches us in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Let me read it to you. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's grace, which is Christ himself, he will lead us, he will teach us, and he will guide us in what? How to live a holy life. You see, when we lack 
a spiritual diligence and endurance to pursue holiness, we will not see the Lord. We'll be blinded and bear the consequences in our life. And in fact, it talks about lest any root of bitterness should spring up. You know, bitterness defiles people. You know, it's the saddest thing to see long-term Christians grow bitter. It's, again, the grace of God has failed somewhere in their lives. They've grown anger and resentment and bitterness. And this is deadly. It says it causes trouble and by this many become defiled, it says in the scripture. And then it talks about Esau and it talks about, you know, Esau selling his birthright for a piece of food. You know, that's what people do rather than, the, uh, it talks about that is symbolic of us in our worldly desires and, and, um, and compromises of the world. Don't love the world. Don't sell out for the world. Because Esau was, uh, sold his birthright and then when he sought it, he couldn't get it back. And in other words, you know, there's consequences to sin in our lives. And this might not have to do with your salvation, but I tell you what, you can also alter the course of what God's will was and is for your life because you have uh, failed to heed and to listen and to obey. And then the consequences come later in life. And you say, well, what have I done? That's what Esau did. So my, I urge us this morning to take heed to God's discipline because the Bible's clear. God wants us to be partakers of his holiness this morning. Scripture, scripture says it. It should be, it's his desire, it should be ours. And God disciplines us in order to be partakers of his holiness. We need to acknowledge that. And in light of that, let us pursue holiness and make every effort this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Lord, for the word of God, Lord, that is true. My God, we just thank you that you're a father who loves and we are your children, Lord. And I thank you, God, that uh, whom you love, you chasten. I thank you, God, for the faithfulness of God to correct us, to discipline and chastise us. For our profit, Lord, that we may be partakers of your holiness in this life, God, that we would separate from those things that are unholy, separate from those things that are sinful, separate from every weight that so easily ensnares us. My God, and I pray we would be those that would pursue, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. My God, I pray, bless us and help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.